turn to Galatians chapter 5. And that's a good reminder, uh, Brant. Uh, Karen reminded me this week that um, how clear it is that worship is a command. Now, you think, how, how can you be, like, commanded to, like, feel something, right? Commanded to, oh, Lord, I love you so much. Um, that, you know, it's hard in one sense, isn't it? But in another sense, uh, we are commanded to, to seek that out, right? To, to, to meditate, to do whatever it, uh, we can so that we can experience genuine worship. So, ought to be a desire, but it's also a command. Let me read from chapter 5, follow along in your, in your Bibles, where Paul has written this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by a law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I want to show a video from the 1984 Olympics. And uh, this incident is one of the most controversial incidents in all of Olympic history. I show it in the first service. Not one person was familiar with it. So I have confidence uh, that you're going to be a little, a little more familiar with this brief clip. Into the stretch, Bud and Decker make contact. Pika moves between Wendy Sly and Zola Bud to take the lead. Decker makes an attempt to get back into the race. Not many, not many. I, I, I'm a little surprised. I guess I'm older than I thought. Uh, but this, as I said, uh, most controversial moments in Olympic history. Now, that's Mary Decker Slaney. She was a force to be reckoned with. She was uh, the reigning world champion in her career. She set 36 American records and 17 world records. She was so dominant in her field. This is the 84 Olympics. From 1980 to 1984, she did not lose a single race at any distance. I mean, I've never heard of such absolute dominance. At one time, she held all the records from 1,500 all the way to 10,000 meters. So here in this 3,000-meter race, this up-and-coming Zola Bud, 18-year-old phenomenon, uh, 
appeared to trip her. In fact, let me slow down the video and see if you can see the moment she appears to stick out her leg and trip her. <laughs> Dan thinks she did. Here's a still picture. You know, so think, her body's upright, her leg is way out. I mean, it looks absolutely intentional. And as soon as it happened, Mary Decker said, yeah, no doubt. There's no doubt she did that purposefully. Uh, now, they reunited a few years ago after 30 years of not seeing one another. And uh, I think it was even shortly after that, Mary Decker changed her mind that she really thinks it was part, part of her fault. But uh, nevertheless, either way, verse 7 of our text, I think, seems to fit perfectly here, uh, where Paul says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up so drastically. Now, you probably understand that Paul often uses the metaphor of running or sometimes walking for the Christian life. And the Galatians, this, this church in Galatia, had believed the gospel. They were rescued from the slavery of their sin, and they were running well. They were uh, following Christ, but then someone cut them off. Someone tripped them. Their race was hindered. They stumbled and fell. Paul says some of them stump, f- fell from grace. So here we have people in circumstances, which is another way of saying the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly trying to cut you and I off in running the race of Christ, to keep us from running, to make us fall from grace. Now we are talking about a command here. We are commanded to stand firm in all of our freedoms in Christ. And I count at least six freedoms here in this passage. Number one, that we stand firm in our freedom from the slavery of sin. As Paul wrote in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. I hope you understand that that sin is slavery. Paul uses this metaphor for sin at least 20 times in his many letters. But it's really more than a metaphor, isn't it? I mean, as an unbeliever, you are literally a slave to sin. We are truly slaves of the worst kind because we have the cruelest possible master who wants to destroy us and drag us down into the unquenchable flames of hell. The chains of slavery which shackle us to our sin are absolutely inescapable without the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that breaks our bonds and sets us free. And he did this in a very literal sense, didn't he? The Lord rescued the Israelites from actual slavery, but of course this serves as a metaphor for us as well, for believers. Uh, In Leviticus we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. By the way, the Lord used that phrase, he described himself multiple times that same way. I am the Lord your God, who am I? I am the God who brought you out of the land of slavery that you should not be their slaves. He goes on to say, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Every believer ought to have some sense of when they first tasted the freedom from the shackles of sin, right? Now, I know some of you, I I was uh, saved, you know, very uh, dramatically on a a Sunday morning, you know, uh, felt like one moment I was an unbeliever, the next moment I was a believer. Many of you have that experience. Many of you, you know, there's kind of months uh, where you're not sure exactly when you cross a line from unbelief into belief. Nevertheless, uh, as a believer, 
uh, you have crossed that line, and at some point you should have felt the taste, the first, the first breath of freedom uh, when you're unshackled from the weight of that sin. Can, can, can you remember that? Can you, can you still kind of feel what that was like? Mine was August of 1980. I was just thinking about that again, which means I've been saved for over 40 years. Uh, what a blessed, blessed thing. But hopefully, as you recall it, uh, hopefully it doesn't take a lot to recall it, that you taste that freedom that you experience for the first time. The uh, Door of Hope, which uh, if you're not familiar with, is a local ministry. It's existed for at least 25 years. Uh, has been at, at its best when it was functioning well, a crisis pregnancy center. But they have decided to close their doors. But graciously, they want to pass the ministry on, whatever that looks like in the future, to another church or a group of churches. And uh, this past week, there were about eight churches represented. We're meeting and trying to uh, discuss, you know, who might be involved and what it's going to look like and so forth. And everyone's going around sharing, you know, ideas and what they think would be best. And one person said, well, Whatever happens, I just want to do good in Jesus' name because Jesus was all about feeding the hungry. And I said, uh, I, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't outright criticize her, but it was my turn. I tried to fill in uh, a little bit more than that. And I said, well, actually, uh, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, I, I, I shared from Luke 13 where the, the tower fell on those and the innocent people in Siloam and uh, that the Pilate cruci- uh, sacrificed a bunch of uh, Jews and mixed them with their own sacrifices. And what did Jesus say? Unless you repent you will also likewise perish. It doesn't matter what drastic things happen to you, unless, or how innocent you are, unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. And what I was trying to get across in that moment is, no matter what happens to this renewed ministry, if it is indeed renewed, that the gospel must remain or be recaptured uh, to the center of that ministry. Those who trust in Christ alone must stand firm on the fact that Christ alone set us free from the slavery of sin. So in other words, it's not enough just to believe that the gospel is true for us, for me. It's not just to to say, well, yeah, I'm glad. I I rejoice in what Christ has done for for me. Standing firm in the gospel means that we must guard and protect the integrity of, of the gospel for other people right? Don't make it just selfish about you. Hey, I'm in the kingdom. I'm fine. We guard and protect for other people. We must stand firm on the true gospel or else we'll have nothing else to give. Secondly, we must stand firm in our freedom from false teachers. Uh, We must remember that this, this letter to the Galatians, Paul's first ever letter, was written primarily to combat false teaching that had infiltrated the church. In chapter 2, Paul wrote this, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, so they're false, they came in secretly, who slipped in, see, see how deceptive this is? False brothers secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom. You see all the deceptive language he's using here? To spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, we already possess that, So that, what was their purpose for all that spying and deception? So they might bring us into slavery. 
Do you see? As those believers in Galatia were shackled to their sin, Jesus Christ broke their bonds and they're free, and now these false teachers want to re-enslave them again, draw them back into slavery. And one of the problems with any kind of false teaching is that it doesn't take much for this to happen. Illustrated very, very well by verse 9 where Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, I understand that leaven is, is again, another metaphor for sin, or in the case of the, the Galatian church, especially the sin of the, the false teachers and the, and the message that they had. And if you think of leaven, of course, you, your mind ought to go back to uh, the original Passover. And what kind of bread were they supposed to eat? Unleavened, right? No leaven whatsoever. There wasn't supposed to be any leaven in the house. As a matter of fact, uh, Jewish custom, if you're really serious about it, you do like a a crazy good cleaning of your house. You, you sweep every corner and you dust every nook and cranny, all the, all the levels, and you want to make absolutely sure that there is not a hint of leaven anywhere in the house that would possibly contaminate that bread. Why? Because it's a metaphor for sin. And uh, uh, how successful are you once the leaven is mixed into the bread? How successful are you removing that leaven? Impossible, Right? Absolutely impossible to separate those things. No, the, uh, there was to be no chance of contamination of leaven because you could not possibly separate it afterwards. Uh, this is meant to warn you and I about the leaven of sin in false teaching. Because once the leaven is, is in, a, in a church, in a denomination, or you could say even in your own heart, if there are sins that, that take hold and begin to mix in with your life, it is so much more difficult to separate those things. Which is why prevention is the key. That's why sweep the house clean. Don't let it contaminate you. And that's the, that's the kind of standing firm we need to constantly do in our own life. Sweep those things clean. I, I keep reminding you this, but it, but it bears repeating about Peter and Barnabas that they also were led astray. Peter, the head of the church, he is the rock and he was led astray by some knuckleheads coming into the church uh, and drawing him away from Christ. So if it can happen to them, guess what? It can happen to any of us. Now, in this context, the, the false teaching, of course, and Paul brings especially circumcision out here, but he says, you know, if you're circumcised, now you're obligated to obey the whole law. So they wanted uh, those new Gentile converts to also follow the whole ceremonial law, including uh, the drastic uh, action of circumcision. So fundamentally here, and I've used this phrase before, we have a, a Jesus plus problem, right? Uh, that they accepted Jesus, but Jesus was not enough. Now, now would, you, would you ever, would those, those words ever come across your lips? Jesus is not enough. Can you imagine? I mean, it's blasphemous. It's, it's horrible. We would never think of saying such a thing. Yet, we sometimes live as if Jesus is not enough. We need to uh, do these other good things and good works to, to kind of bolster our standing before God. And we are saying, Lord Jesus, you are not enough right at this moment. Do you know how rare it is for a church to adopt false teaching and then break free of it? 
I'm telling you, it's just like Paul's. It's a great analogy. Leaven leavens the whole lump. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a, 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 a false teaching really take root in a church. And I don't mean just a pastor preaching something here and there and the like, hey, get rid of the bomb, you know, let's, let's get somebody that's uh, orthodox in here. I don't mean that, but it's truly taken root in the church. I've never seen a church or denomination recover from that. So we have this Jesus plus problem. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. If you are truly depending on something other than Christ, and I mean truly depending. I don't mean just like, you know, yeah, I'm, I, I'm living as if Jesus is not enough right now. I'm not trusting him. But if you truly depend on something other than Christ, you are not depending on Jesus. So that's a Jesus plus problem. The other extreme would be reducing Jesus such as the person in that, that meeting, reducing Jesus to just a good person, just a, just a good example. His primary goal on earth was to feed the hungry. Well, you have a false Jesus. You do not have the true Jesus. But you can see in both cases, you're depending on your good works, right? Because if you're a legalist and you're adding all those good works to the work of Christ, you are still depending fundamentally on your good works. But if you reduce Jesus to just a good person, what do you have left? Your good works. Do you see? It doesn't matter if you're the most legalistic person or the most liberal person. You end up depending only on your good deeds. And to me, the most frightening thing about false teachers is not that they operate out there, but that they, what does Paul say? Spy out. Uh, secretly move in. They work within the church. They penetrate into the body of believers because uh, the problem is all false teaching is disguised as orthodox Christianity. You're never going to have a false teacher come in and say, you know what, I, I realize this, this Maurer guy has been, been teaching you for about 20 years, but everything he's ever said is wrong, and I'm going to lead you down this different path because this is the correct path. They'll never say that. They will secretly uh, use, and the most important thing, and this is true in all of life, but it's certainly in theology and Christianity, they use the same words and redefine those words to mean something entirely different. Watch out. Stand firm on your theology and your definitions. Uh, so easy, easy to do. Um, you can experience freedom from false teachers. And we, Lord willing, we have, but we must stand firm on that. Thirdly, stand firm in your freedom from the performance trap. I'll explain uh, what I mean by that in, in a little bit, but uh, look at verse 4. Paul wrote something that is very shocking. He says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, at one level, this is absolutely as serious as it gets. Being severed from Christ. What's that sound like? That sounds like I'm severed from Christ. I'm, I'm cut off from Christ. And Paul finished that thought by saying the person has fallen from grace. So he says, if you seek to be justified by law, what, what's justified again? Justified is being declared innocent in God's holy uh, eyes, right? So to be justified by obeying the law means that you must, that's why he says you're obligated to obey the whole law. You have to literally be innocent in your following of the law. Um, you're depending, obviously, on your own merit, which again is the same Jesus plus problem. Uh, you ought to, I mean, when I'm talking about Jesus plus, you might as well get rid of Jesus at that point, right? <laughs> Fundamentally, just say, it's, it's something else. It's the plus part. It's your own good works. You're truly depending on your own merit 
for salvation. And even if you add Jesus into the mix, right, you cannot be saved. You are cut off from Christ. And this is an incredibly strong warning to anyone. But remember, who was Paul writing this to? He's writing it to a church, isn't he? False teachers had, had infiltrated in the church to, to draw away those who were truly saved. But can someone be pulled away from saving grace? Can you lose your salvation? No? Did I hear a no? Can I hear a hundred no's? No. You can't lose your salvation. So if a true believer can't lose his or her salvation, why then was Paul warning them that they could be severed from Christ? Well, I think a couple things are happening here at two levels. One, there's definitely a severe warning to anyone who would trust in law and any good works to justify themselves. And it doesn't matter if you've been in the church from birth. It doesn't matter if you stand up and say, I believe this and, and I believe that. Yeah, if you are not trusting in Christ alone, you are severed from Christ. I mean, I think we all know people who have spent a long time in churches and one day they're like, you know what? I'm not saved. I thought I was saved. I was that way. I've, I've shared this many times. Until I was 16. Uh, going to church and I was saying I believed Jesus uh, was a savior. He died for my sins. Completely unsaved at that point. Um, so this kind of message is written to people like my 16-year-old self or anybody who would be in church and not yet fully trusted in Christ. So, so that's a serious warning message and, and we must not water that down whatsoever. But I believe there's also another warning here for the true believer to alert them to the fact that they very well might be stuck in what I'm calling a performance trap. Now, a performance trap is a, it's a type of Christian perfectionism. It's a, it's a little bit similar to legalism, but, but not quite the same thing. So let me give you an example to, to get us thinking here. Let's say you're, you're a young man and you're in, you're in this Galatian church. And you're a, you're a genuine believer, you're, you're running well, you're walking with Christ, so everything's going, go, going okay. Then these, these false believers, they, they sneak in, they're spying out your freedom, and they, they convince you to get circumcised. They convince you you've got to follow the whole ceremonial law. Here's my question. If you're a genuine believer, and then you get circumcised, do you lose your salvation? Of course not. No. Uh, uh, but in a practical sort of sense, you, you fell from grace. You, you didn't fall from God's saving grace. You fell, or we could say, walked away from God's sustaining grace. You see, this is what I mean by the performance trap, that you, you're removing yourself. You're, you're, you're saying, in essence, right, Jesus is not enough. Let me give you a couple of possible indicators that you're stuck in the performance trap. One, you know you are saved, but you don't feel really and completely accepted by God. You make judgments about yourself and others based on a defined list of achievements and good works. You, you got all these things, and you look around, and you say, you know, well, clearly they're not doing this, and they're not doing that, and she's not doing that. You are intolerable of failure in yourself or in those around you. Your relationship with God is based on what you do, in other words, what you do for him instead of who you are, what he has done for you. You know you're going to heaven, but you're not sure God really likes you that much. Whatever you do, it just never seems to be enough. You resent criticism because it exposes your faults and diminishes your achievements, and you need those achievements 
to justify yourself in God's sight. Now, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I have a good guess that almost every one of us has felt some of these things at one time or another. You may have been justified by grace alone, but you're trying to run the race in your own effort. You may not be working for your salvation, but you're working for your acceptance and your significance. To use Paul's running metaphor, the performance trap is like running on a treadmill. We have one in our basement, and I, and I use it when it's cold or rainy or yucky outside or when I just don't want to be too hot. And you know what I found every time? doesn't matter how much effort I expend, I never get anywhere. You ever see that? Ever experience that? That's a performance trap. You are expending tremendous amounts of effort in your Christian life, and you never make any progress in the Christian life. Paul says to any of us struggling in this area, and probably small hand, big hand, probably all of us, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the performance trap, understand, is a type of slavery. What are you enslaved to? You're enslaved to perfectionism and performance. So if we're supposed to stand firm, what is it that we're standing firm on? Well, let's, let me, I think Paul gives a solution back in chapter 3. He says, are you so foolish? Yes, we are, Paul. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? There it is, right? So simple. Having begun by the Spirit, who saved you? The Holy Spirit, Jesus, the work of Christ. How are you running? In my own flesh, actually, if, if I'm honest. We began by the Spirit, but we want to be perfected by the flesh. We, we start with Christ alone, then we add these good works. We have to stand firm in what Christ has already done for us. These freedoms, all these freedoms I'm describing you, are already yours. We just need to stand firm upon them. So stand firm upon what Christ has already done for you, not what you can do for Him. Number four, we must stand firm in our freedom from the fear of suffering. Again, remembering, false, teaching, false teachers were so persuasive that they led astray even Peter and Barnabas. If you remember chapter 2, it says, Peter feared the, the men, the, the Judaizers, the, the, the circum, circumcision people. He actually feared them. What did he fear? Fundamentally, he was fearing being persecuted by them. Uh, he just wanted to, to remember, he moved himself from the Gentiles uh, so that he's not uh, troubled by them. There's, he, he eliminated any sense of persecution. He shrinked back from suffering for his faith. And was that the first time that Peter removed himself from any possibility of, of suffering or problems? Absolutely not. That's the definition of Peter, isn't it? Oh, there's trouble. I'm out of here. Uh, but at least it, 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 when Jesus was arrested, he ran away, and then he was, what, the only one to come back, praise the Lord. So it wasn't the first time, but you would still think, you know, I mean, again, he's the rock. I mean, this is, this is the Peter there. They probably called him the Peter, and, and, and he fell away. You'd think he would have learned his lesson by then. But I think it's just another example of the humanity of the disciples, right? What, what, what are we told? They were ordinary men. They've been with Jesus, but they're ordinary men. So this sort of thing reminds us of the frailty of the disciples, and it reminds us of what? Our frailty as well. But Peter did learn lessons along the way. It's evidenced, uh, among other things, by his two letters. Uh, I'm going to read from uh, his first letter, chapter 3. But before I do that, I want you to, to picture now little scared Peter 
run away. He's fearing these big bad guys uh, that, that are going to cause him trouble. Uh, he separates from the Gentiles. He's fallen away. So that's Peter. Picture him now. Now listen to this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that's what he was trying to avoid, suffering for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. Only if he just had this in his mind back then. But in your heart, what's the opposite of fear? In your heart, honor, the, honor Christ the Lord as holy. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You think you learned some lessons there? Hugely. And Peter recognizes here, admits that the suffering comes to all people, so far better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And take note as well how, how I phrase this freedom. It's not the freedom from suffering, is it? The freedom from the fear of suffering. Now, if you run the race well, you will suffer. And even if you don't run the race, well, guess what? Life will cause you suffering, which is why he says it's far better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I think we understand that, that persecution, it, it's in the pike, isn't it? It's coming. Uh, but you've got to understand that the control valve for any kind of persecution that's coming is firmly in Christ's hand. Do you understand that? That uh, at the, the speed at which it comes, the, uh, the, the force at which it comes, the, the way it's dispersed to any one of us uh, throughout the community or the world, God controls the valve of that persecution. And he will untwist uh, it and let it come in when he so wills or he will keep it as low as he wants, as he wills. And if you don't believe that, you will fear whatever is coming. But if you believe that he is absolutely sovereignly in control of even that, then we can stand firm and not allow faith to rule our hearts. Fifth, we're going to stand firm in the freedom from the flesh. Now, what, what's the flesh? That's me, isn't it? That's you. That's, that's, that's our sinful nature. Verse 13 if you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And I believe every believer needs this reminder because once uh, you're free from sin, once those, remember I talked about, you know, you're, you're, you're smelling, you're tasting freedom for the very first time and you love that freedom and you're rejoicing and you're living in that freedom, but it's real easy to swing the other way into license and licentiousness. And you start to think, well, you know what? If freedom means I don't need to get circumcised, I don't need to obey the ceremonial parts of law, there's a, there's a whole lot of, of words here that I'm not obligated to follow anymore in that, that strict sense. So, so if that's true, then what's holding me back from experiencing all of life, all the joys and pleasures of life? I'm free in Christ. There's a letter that Paul writes to a certain church this was exactly their problem, the Corinthian church. That was their mindset. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. The free man or the free woman can quickly indulge the flesh in the pursuit of their so-called freedom. But freedom must never, ever be a license for sin. Lastly, this morning, we must stand firm in our freedom to love. Let me... Read 13 again and into 14. 
If you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And now he says, here's the opposite of that. But instead of through love, serve one another. Why? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this word freedom, if we weren't in church this morning, and you heard the word freedom, your, your mind is going to fill in that word. Talk about how we define words, right? Your mind is going to fill in that word freedom with, with all sorts of, of definitions and meaning and significance and experiences you've had. And, and that makes sense. Uh, but I think, especially for Americans, this word freedom is increasingly becoming synonymous with autonomy. Autonomy just means self-rule. I get to do whatever I want. And, and we have a lot of freedoms, right? We, we're free to own guns. We're free to own property. We're free to, to wear a mask or not wear a mask, you know, in our day right now. And if something isn't expressly illegal, freedom gives us the right to do whatever is not illegal. Now, now some push really hard into that, right? And, and others not, not nearly as hard, but, but generally freedom is becoming synonymous with autonomy or I just get to live as I choose. And that's not exactly wrong, is it? I'm not, I'm not up here saying that's wrong because we are granted such freedoms in the United States, it's just stunning. No other citizens of any nation in all of human history have ever been as free as us or as prosperous as we have been and are. And all these freedoms, all the freedoms granted to us by God, by uh, the Constitution of the United States, and especially these freedoms granted to us by the blood of Christ and His sovereign rule are truly freedoms. They make us more and more free in Christ and secure in Him. But this last freedom is, it's a little different. Freedom to love. The freedom to love is, is constraining. There's a constraint here. I'm going to describe it now. It's not restrictive in the sense of, of like slavery, because uh, that would be no longer be freedom. But there's, there's a constraint here because love is voluntarily restrictive. Have you noticed that? When you have a, a selfish inclination in your heart and you're like, you know, I ought to be like serving my family, but, you know, I'd rather be doing this right now or whatever it is. That selfish inclination and overcoming that selfish inclination, which is, you know, to, to follow it out, that's freedom. Oh, I'm free to do that. To, to eliminate that selfish inclination is to what? Restrain your freedom. To uh, restrict your self-rule and autonomy to some degree. We, for the sake of love, we purposely hold back some of our freedoms. That's what Paul is saying. Here's how he says it in Romans 13. Let no doubt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Uh, That keeps going back to Christ again and again. Let me give you a, uh, this is, this is going to be a kind of a strange example, but you'll, you'll see where I'm going in just a moment. Uh, I saw this posted as a meme on Facebook last week, and it says this, a sad realization when I see an American flag in your social media profile pic, I just assume you're racist. Our country's flag is now becoming synonymous with racism, and then I saw one comment on that says, me too, I'm even suspicious of eagles. And I think, oh my, we used to live in, in Sauk Prairie, and that's the land of the eagles, man. We'd go out every winter, and the, the river's not frozen. There'd be a couple dozen eagles uh, in the island there, and swooping around and getting their, their fill of fish. I mean, at one level, this is just pure 
crazy nonsense. This is divisive and quite a bit nuts, if you ask me. Because we understand the overwhelming majority of people who love the flag and love our nation are not racist and mean no harm whatsoever. So to assume that everyone who has a flag is racist is one of the worst takes I've ever seen. It is just simply crazy town. However, there is, however uh, small it is, there is a small kernel of truth in this. Why? Because on the other side of this spectrum, there are uh, enough flag-waving crazies on the other side that fuels the fire of this sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying some of those extreme people cause people like this to believe it, but they justify their beliefs in this. Do you see what I mean? When people demand their freedoms all the time, and they do it while being so nasty and mean, that gives full justification for this kinds of beliefs. Now, as the election gets closer, and believe it or not, do you think things are going to get crazier yet? I kind of think that. As that happens, please do not allow your freedom to win out over your love. Whoever this shy holder is, I don't know who he is, I owe him a debt of love. Now that's not to say that, that every crazy thing you see on social media you're supposed to respond to, or, uh, but please don't do that. Uh, I'm not saying that anyone's going to change his mind, although I did reach out to him and wrote him a note and say, hey, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Yeah, like, you know, like that'll go anywhere. Uh, nevertheless, But what I am saying is that our love must be expressed in all of our dealings with people. So in other words, uh, you might be tempted the next uh, six weeks or so, uh, you've got a social media thing and you're ready to respond to it, you're ready to hit send and post and, and you think, oh, wait a minute, a debt of love. Yeah, that's right, a debt of love. Or you're, you're ready to write that email because, you know, so-and-so offended you uh, and you're going to give them what for and, and you've got to stop and think, uh, debt of love. Dead of love, paid for by the blood of Christ. You might have something you just got to say. I mean, the, this person uh, isn't thinking the right way, isn't living the way that you think they're supposed to, and, and you just got to say it. Dead of love, bought by the blood of Christ. See how that works? See, there's a sense in which it's, yes, it's constraining. You don't get to do everything that you think you want to do. But I'm telling you, The freedom to love with that kind of restraint, paradoxically, is one of the greatest freedoms you'll ever experience. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that we have such a twisted sense of of freedom we can feel free in, in, our, in our rights as American citizens while we're still drastically enslaved spiritually. Father, we began with the Holy Spirit and we want to continue on with the Holy Spirit, which is why we need these constant reminders. It's okay to be reminded. It's good to be reminded to, to stand firm. Not in our own strength, but just hanging on to what you've already done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would say when we experience the Lord's Supper,
It's a summary of what we're doing, right? We're just hanging on to what Jesus has already done for us. We're celebrating that again. We're remembering that. What I'd like to do is, uh, before we come, is to have some quiet moments. And it's a reminder also, dead of love. So Paul reminds us, search your hearts. See if you're, make sure you're not eating in an unworthy manner. There's all kinds of things that could relate to. But a sin you're just, you're, you're stubbornly holding on to and won't let go. A broken relationship that you've made no attempt to fix at all. Confess that. So let's, let's take a few quiet moments and we began with the Spirit. So, so why don't we ask the Spirit to reveal what's in our, in our heart right now?